Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Tech Done Different. As always, I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is our special guest, Casey Ellis, the founder and chair of Bug Crowd. Casey, I'm psyched to have you on the show. Psyched to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we, we were just chatting before hitting record about the fact that we swim in the same circles for so many years, and this is us finally getting to chat with each other. I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah, no, it's it's funny how often that happens. Obviously, you know, it, it happens to me, and I hear it happens to, to everyone else. It's like the community is, we all kind of work on the same things, but there's such a, there's all these different versions of the same thing that we're so focused on. So the ability to actually converge and catch up, that's always a good thing. Looking forward to debating 100%. the RL version of that. So yeah, <laughs> maybe we'll get back to it. Some, someday soon. Yeah. So I wanted to, I've been really excited to have you on the show just in general because of the things that you guys do in the field of ethical hacking and security research and everything. And you and I were chatting about this idea earlier, and this is where I wanted to start was around kind of where we're at with security research. So in your view, what would you say is the current state of security research today? And where would you say that it's going? Yeah. So you know, the, the current state of security research today, I think there's there's been a real shift that, that COVID actually drove because you know one of the things that COVID kind of triggered from a, a digital transformation standpoint was a whole bunch of stuff being done really quickly. Do you know what I mean? Like we all got forced into working from home. You know, people selling stuff in stores, they had to figure out how to sell it online. You know, that netted out to just a whole bunch of change on the internet. And, you know, really what that did was caused a whole bunch of need for security engineering, you know, for people to kind of look ahead of, of where things are going to be needed instead of, you know, the traditional approach taken to security, which is kind of playing off the trailing indicators and, and less so the leading ones. And this is to me where security research comes into it. This idea, you know, some of the stuff that's being done at the moment around, you know, CodeQL and SEMgraph, because all of a sudden everyone's realized that open source is this massive problem, which has been true for a while, but you know, it caught on fire at the end of last year. So now everyone's talking about it. Those sorts of things in terms of tooling and actually not like going beyond the bug or going beyond the vulnerability and actually saying, here's a solution to be able to actually, you know, create more scale in, in how we approach solving these problems. I think that's that's something that there's a lot of desire for in the market, is 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 what I'm seeing. And and the folks that are, are doing well. As security researchers, in terms of actually making what they what they come up with useful to people, are the ones that are that are working on that kind of thing. So that'd be one thing. I, I think probably the second. You know, I just mentioned open source, like different domains of security research. Something that you know, bug crowds always tried to do is like try to see around the corner on the next thing that's going to catch on fire and, and make sure that we're skilling up around that. You know, we did that with with mobile. We did that with IoT, consumer IoT. Did it with automotive. I think in the season that we're in right now. You know, open source security and actually understanding how to how to you know have code be more a part of your offensive security testing process is is a pretty valuable skill to have. And if you don't have it, to to try to learn it. And you know, thinking thinking forward, machine learning is is something that I'm I'm keeping an eye on in terms of the convergence of slapping ML on everything and not really knowing what it does. And then all of a sudden, some somewhere down the track, it kind of blows up, and we have to figure out how to secure it. I think we're getting close to that. You know, what I call the oh shit moment for uh, for machine learning. So those are those are a couple of thoughts that I've got. So that's an interesting 
observation you just made about open source and let me make sure i understood what the observation was so you're saying that for the, for a long time people understood that open source actually introduces some security challenges but only recently are people starting to recognize and do something about this is that what you were saying yeah i think that's yeah absolutely i mean yeah a similar a similar pattern if you look at connected cars and automotive security Right. And, and it, it kind of took, you know, Charlie Miller and Chris Balasek at, I think, DEF CON 2015, demonstrating the actual practical security implications of that for, for that industry to, oh, crap, we should, okay, we, we get it now. We need to actually go off and do something about that. And to their credit, the automotive industry was super responsive to that. Yeah. The challenge with security is that, like, I had a, I had a Lyft driver one time um, here in the Bay Area, tried out this amazing line, which was all security is the product of something bad happening. And it's kind of a pessimistic point of view, but it's sort of true. Like if you're trying to make a product work, it's hard enough to get it to do that thing in the first place, let alone stop it from doing all the crap it shouldn't do. So sometimes it does take a trash fire for people to actually realize that there is a problem. And in the case of open source, how how like pervasive and deep that problem is. You know, Log4j caused a, a decent chunk of people to lose their holidays. You know, there, there was like just this very visceral impact of like a, a bug in open source code that kind of went right across the entire internet at a very inconvenient point in time. I think that got the message across that we really don't have a have a handle on this just yet. So the output of that, is, yeah, we should probably fix that. Yeah, that, that's really interesting too, because I'm curious if you think this perception still exists or maybe it's changed now based on what you just said. But for the longest time, I always thought it was really fascinating that people felt like, oh, well, if the software is open source, that means by definition, more people look at it, which inherently means it's more secure because more people have performed you know, security assessments on it, things like that. And that last leap is actually not inherently true, but people believe it to be true. And do you think that that's changing? Yeah, I think that last leap applies to features. It doesn't necessarily apply to security issues. So, so this whole idea, like many, many eyes make all bugs shallow. Yeah, for sure. If you're deploying you, know, you go back to Heartbleed, you go back to you know open SSL, right? All the, all of the features that go into that and making sure those features work as they should, for sure. Many, many eyes make all bugs shallow because you want the thing to work. But that's because it's the incentive of the people that are actually deploying that code, right? They they want it to do open SSL things. Um, they're not necessarily thinking about all the things that open SSL shouldn't do. And and but a big mud boom, you end up with with Heartbleed. Similar thing with with Log4J. Like that was a yeah, the Jindy component of, of Log4J that was actually exploited by Log4Shell, that was a feature request from ages back. And all of the work in an open source context went into actually making that feature behave the way that the users wanted it to behave. There wasn't necessarily that same thought put into how to you know prevent it from doing stuff like what Log4Shell did, right? So this idea that many eyes plus the right incentive makes all bugs shallow, and the incentive really hasn't been on securing open source code. That's the thing that I think is changing. You know, the whole idea around like software bill of materials is a way to try to codify this and get our arms around it. I don't think it's a silver bullet, but I do think it's a very important tool for us to have. And just this general idea that like maybe this stuff isn't quite as secure as we thought it was. Let's not assume and actually just start to try to be proactive around you know what we're doing to protect it. Right. And it's interesting too that the discussion even has to be happening about whether the nature of the code, whether it's closed source or open source, that actually has no bearing on the security of it. It just means how you secure it is different. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, the, the thing that maybe what happened leading into this is that the, the internet confused transparency with security. Because I do think transparency, you know, in terms of being able to actually see what's going on around a fix, around where a vulnerability is, all that kind of stuff, it does inherently convert to more trust. 
right? If you can see what's going on, then then as a human, you're more likely to trust it. So that part of it, I can kind of understand. But to take that leap and say, oh, therefore, it's more secure and we don't need to worry about it as much, I don't think that's necessarily a rational leap to take. But I think it's it's kind of the the assumption that we've been operating off for, for quite a while. And, you know, it's in the process of changing right now. Yeah, that's fascinating. The correlation you're drawing between transparency and security. I, I definitely have seen that as well. Yeah, it's a weird one because trust is actually the thing that makes the business run, right? Like trust is trust is what sells product. It's what makes people use the thing that you built. And there is a pretty tight correlation between trust and security in, in a lot of ways, but there isn't a causality to it. And that's the assumption that's flawed, that's you know in the process of being corrected. Where do you think that these flawed assumptions come from? Do you think they come from the security community itself or from others outside the security community misunderstanding how security works? That's a really good one. I think it's both. I think, you know, I'm, I'm known for saying, and this really annoys people when I say it, which is part of the reason. Let's say it. I say it. <laughs> the idea that like, security is fundamentally a marketing problem and a design problem, right? On the marketing side, like you don't, you know, the analogy I use is you don't put bars on your windows and, and like a massive set of locks on your front door, unless you realize you're in a bad neighborhood. And, and for you to realize that you have to have like observed that. So if you, if your neighbors are doing the same thing, or if someone's come and told you they got robbed or whatever else, then you know, you're in a bad neighborhood and you go off and go through the inconvenience and the extra kind of cost of making your home more secure to prevent that from happening to you. But there's, there's this communication, this marketing piece that has to happen before you'll actually submit yourself to the inconvenience of being more secure. Right. And then on the flip side of that, you know, the, the cost part that I was just talking about, that's the design. Ultimately, I think mostly a design issue. Like our, our job, if we're doing it right as defenders, is to make insecure as obvious as possible and to make secure as easy as possible. And I think to your question, I think the origin of, of the confusion probably isn't from within the security community. I think it's probably more business people and marketing folk and whatever else. But where the security community has, I think, fundamentally failed at, at correcting this is not thinking about the marketing and design aspects of what we actually do as experts in the space. Like we're, we're deep in the tech, we're doing all these really cool things, but there's this gap sometimes between what we know and how the business understands its relevance to the, all of the other stuff that might be going on within a business that ultimately it's kind of our job to fill. And that's not necessarily something I, I've seen in general that shift in terms of how practitioners think about security over the past five or six years. But prior to that, it wasn't even really a concept, I think, for, for most folks. Hmm. So when you're talking about marketing, are you talking about how essentially the security professionals communicate to the business why this matters and what to do about it? Communication, communication in the language of, of the audience so that they can actually understand it. It's, it's not about necessarily you having said it, it's about it having been received in a way that it can be acted on. And I think it's that it's that second part that I kind of characterize as marketing in the sense of like, I know there's a problem and I know there's a potential solution to that problem. That's what I consider marketing to be, not you know, spam emails and all that kind of stuff. It's just one version of it. So yeah, that communication piece, I think is, is a really important part of the overall solution in security, just full stop. But then for individuals, it's actually a really valuable thing to learn. Like we teach bounty hunters this stuff all the time because they'll come in you know, with the, the security research mindset, like hack the planet, like all that kind of, which is awesome. Love that, encourage that. But if that comes at the cost of being able to articulate the risk to the person or to the people that need to actually deal with that risk, then you've got to add some new tools to your kit bag before you can be like as effective as you want to be, right? Yeah. So how do we solve 
this challenge. I see all the time, you've seen it for sure as well, where those in the security community, sometimes when they try to communicate about exactly what we're talking about, like why it matters, the tendency sometimes is to lean too heavily on fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so on one hand, we don't want to do that. But on the other hand, maybe we do need to have some degree of that because that is why it matters, because this is a scary thing. So what's the right balance? Because I, I, I've often wondered, like, where, where do you f- land on that spectrum so that you're communicating the right message? This is something important. You got to do something about it. But without being so annoying, like, you know, we've seen all the marketing emails that are like, did you know you're going to get hacked today? You know, stuff like that, that obviously we shouldn't be that. But it also isn't, hey, this isn't a problem. It's somewhere in between the two, right? Yeah, I think there's different potential approaches to that. I mean, the the thing that I always try to do and the thing that we encourage, you know, bug hunters and people doing vulnerability research and even people that are doing like disclosures that that are coming in cold, it's like, you know, how can you how can you approach this with the attitude of trying to partner with with the recipient, right? Like you're not there to to come in over the fence and say, "Hey, idiot, like you screwed up. Here's this thing." Like its value is self-evident and you're a, you're a knucklehead if you don't understand it and you go off and fix it straight away. Like that's just not going to work. That'll work occasionally, but it most of the time won't because you've, you've, you know, taken a already difficult conversation and made it harder at that point in time. So like, how can you think about, you know, ultimately empathy with, with the recipient, all the things that they're trying to get done. Like how do you kind of try to find a way to slipstream in with that and bring them along your, with with you on your journey in terms of exploiting the software or the system or whatever it is. And, you know, the potential consequences that has for a user. A trick that, that we've used a lot is is to basically just make it interesting. Do you know what I mean? Like if you can, if you can find developers that are kind of curious about security, but not necessarily security nerds or, or like deep security thinkers. If you can get them just sort of peeking over the fence and saying, "Oh, that's cool! I didn't know, I didn't know it could do that." That sort of thing is actually a really useful tool, particularly for the security research community to use to actually try to you know make that whole thing a bit more straightforward and to be able to work together instead of trying to beat butt heads. Yeah. So let me, let me ask you about that part because I think that's a really critical aspect of how the security community can succeed and how the businesses that we serve can succeed as well. How do we make it? I know we're, I believe we're on this path of moving towards being more collaborative and less confrontational. You know, you and I were talking about recently this idea that, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it was like very confrontational and now it's more collaborative, but how, but there's still friction. I think, how do we get it to be closer to like Hey, we're a team doing this together. Yeah, I think it's the the overall. It's just a ton of education. Like soup to nuts is is really. If I was to bucket it back to one thing, it's it's that. Like it's educating people on the research side. You know what's actually going on inside a business. How how much of that can you actually understand in order to help you be more effective when you're communicating with them? On the flip of it, talking to the companies and saying, "Hey, like these folk are out to help you." And and by the way, like telling hackers not to hack your stuff, like the only people that are going to actually pay attention to that are the ones that want to help. Like the the, the malicious ones are just going to ignore that and do do bad guy stuff. So that's not actually a viable way to defend yourself. So you know, just all of these kind of you know, almost back to the open source thing we were talking about before. There's a lot of old tapes. That, that have hung around for a long time that just need to be kind of challenged and rebooted. And those are a couple that, that I think are really important. I mean, some of the stuff we do with Disclose.io is, is really about actually making 
this idea of going out as an organization and saying, I'm, I'm here with an awareness of the fact that like we might have vulnerabilities. We try really hard not to make them, but people write our software and people aren't perfect. So that's a thing that could happen. Let's just, you know, be mature and, and like frankly humble enough to just admit that and get that out there. Cause it's just true. So the question of whether or not you're comfortable saying it, but then to be able to actually receive input from, from hackers on the outside, like make them comfortable that they're not, they're not going to get their door kicked in for trying to help. And even doing things like, you know, publishing a pro- proactive coordinated vulnerability disclosure timeline to say we're actually responsible for, for action, this information, not just making it easy to receive it. Part of what we do with Disclosure is try to make it as simple as possible for folk to implement all that stuff on the outside. Obviously, they've got to fix their insides to, to deal with it as well. But the outside part is, is a lot of what we help with. Um, and then actually promoting it, just saying, hey, like, you know, because you're talking before about FUD, I think a lot of security awareness like out to the broader market is all stick and and no carrot right so how can we turn how can we create more carrot around this and say hey that person's doing the right thing like that's badass hey like non-technical uncle or auntie you know if you if you're looking at this particular type of product maybe you should consider them over these other folk because they're doing the right thing in terms of keeping your data safe like if we can get to that place as an internet i think a whole a whole lot of things become a lot simpler at that point you're preaching to the choir on that. I, uh, when I was writing my book, I, I remember thinking about having this sort of, not crisis, but I was thinking about like, well, why, why do companies invest in security? And in my initial react, like didn't even think about it was, oh, cause it's the right thing to do. And that's, they're doing it cause it's, they want to. And, uh, and I do believe that's true for a lot of companies. They know that they're building a quality product. They want it to be secure, but I realized that's probably there's an additional incentive, which is the companies who properly secure their solutions and can prove it, they have a competitive advantage over those who don't. And people haven't picked up on that yet. And I believe that's what's going to drive, it's the carrot, I think, what you're talking about. Yeah, 100%. And yeah, we are definitely on the same page. I, I think the the altruistic drive to, to be you know best of breed from, from a, a user protection standpoint, that's actually the exception, not the rule, which is I'm like, I feel like a, like a curmudgeon that's been in this industry for too long just saying that. But objectively, when you think about it, right, like if you've got an altruism driver and like a core capitalist driver, that's really the reason for the business existing in the first place, that capitalist driver is going to be the more reliable thing to, to use to get the job done. Right. So I'm just about it through, through that lens. Like if there's great, if people feel good about it and if you're making it easy for them, awesome, let's use that. But in terms of actually transforming the way people think about security from, you know, basically an insurance policy where you have to like minimize, you know, I mean, the other thing with cybersecurity that's a challenge is that if you're doing it right, nothing happens. So, so as a, as an operator within a business, you know, when you get asked to talk about your return on investment for the past year, it's kind of hard to do almost unless you've been breached. Do you know what I mean? Like it's like, oh yeah, nothing happened. And I'm pretty sure it's because of all the money I spent over the last 12 months. So can I have the same and a bit more for the coming year. There's an inherent negative feedback loop in doing this well. That's actually a challenge for practitioners. So this whole idea of like, how can we jump the tracks on that and make it something that actually contributes to the top line of the business through trust and through, through better, you know, brand awareness, all those different things. I think that's, there's a, there's a lot of solutions hiding out in that particular approach to security. And, and yeah, as you said, it's not a thing that a lot of people are thinking about or talking about just yet. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do see that changing. It is definitely just the more progressive organizations right now, but, but I think it's a good thing when you can see like who those organizations are, they're the ones that, you know, everyone else wants to emulate and model. And uh, so hopefully over enough period of time, this will become a significant driver. I mean, it's, it's kind of a bummer when you see most companies don't even have a security page on on their website and then the ones that do it's like buried in the privacy footer and then in there it's a lot of like hand waving nonsense we're like so it's like such a small number of companies say here's what we do here's how we do it here's the results here's why you should trust it and uh, that that's got to change and when it does i think good things will happen we go down to articulating it out to the lowest common denominator like in terms of technical understanding so that we can address as much of the internet as we can with that message. So here, here are the things we're doing. Here's what you can expect. Here's how we're making ourselves accountable. And then, you know, wherever you can, because going back to this whole trust versus security combo we were having before, that's the thing that engenders trust. If you've got the ability to then demonstrate that and say, it's examples of what we're doing. This is where I think vulnerability publishing actually becomes really powerful. You look at the companies that have been doing that for, for a long time, and they're not necessarily always the most trusted, especially when it comes to things like privacy, um, but no one ever gives their security a second thought. Do you know what I mean? Like, and that to me is a leading indicator. It's not something that the entire internet's ready to do just yet, but it seems to work. So, you know, there's a, there's a clue in there, I think. Well, Casey, you've been, you've been awesome. The insights I've learned from you today are uh, amazing. As we come to a close here, is there any parting wisdom or last ideas you want to share with our audience? Yeah, thank you for that. Likewise, it's been a really fun chat. I, I think, you know, just, just this general idea of hackers being the internet's immune system and, and really what we've dealt with over the past, you know, 30 or 40 years at this point is, is equivalent to an autoimmune problem where it's like, no, I don't want that feedback or that feedback I think might be malicious. So I'm just going to kill it off or whatever else. You know, I think time is actually running out at this point to change that. You see, you know, things like vulnerability disclosure being rolled into NIST 853R5. You see like the DOJ changing their charging rules around CFAA to, to protect, you know, hacking that's being done in good faith. There's all of these things that are happening around the environment to basically say, this is just how the internet works. So as an organization, you know, the response to that is like, you need to be thinking about this now. There's, a, there's tremendous benefit to it. You know, reaching out to folk that have, that have done it for a while, like that would probably be my main encouragement. You know, check out Disclosure, give BugCrowd a call because we can actually help you with running these programs. That's the, that's the 10 second plug I'll, I'll, I'll fit into here. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, but then also like peers, you know, who, who, who do you have in your peer group from a defensive side that have actually seen the inside of this and, and understands you know, the parts of it that are difficult, the parts of it that are easy and, and the things that actually create value from it. Go talk to them and get their input on how to get ready for, for basically receiving input from a hacker. If you haven't already and you intend to stay in security as a career, this is something that will happen through the course of your career. So it's smart to get ahead of that. I love it. Casey, thank you so much for being on the show today. Not a, not a problem. Thanks for having me. For everyone who wants to know more about what Casey's up to or about the show itself, go to tedharrington.com backslash podcast and we'll catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.